Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good day, everyone. Uh, this is Jim Hansen. I'm with the architectural panel of Golf Week Magazine, and I'm glad back to be back. This is my first podcast of, uh, of the new year, of 2022, so I hope to get back uh, and to do several more. But I'm really thrilled today to get to talk to my good friend, um, uh, Gary, from uh, Gary Lisbon from Australia. And I, and I want to tell you a little bit about, about Gary before we get started because there's, it's just a really interesting set of, of, of experiences related to golf that Gary has had. Uh, Gary Lisbon has been an accomplished uh, Australian-based, Melbourne Australian-based golf course photographer for two decades. His photographic goal is clear-cut uh, to capture the essence of the golfing landscape of the game through the medium of his camera. With an appreciation for the game's traditions and a genuine love of the playing of golf, Gary brings a golfer's perspective to his photography, ably demonstrated by the spectacular and enduring images from many of the world's top golf courses that he's taken. Uh, Having grown up in Melbourne, Australia, in the middle of its world-famous Melbourne Sandbelt region, which is such a tremendous area for golf courses, Gary's golfing environment provides unbelievable opportunity to practice his photographic skills. Previously a pennant player, and we're going to have to have him tell us what a pennant player is. That's not necessarily familiar to the American uh, context. With With a low handicap. Uh, He now plays what he says is a respectable, yes, indeed, a respectable 10 handicap at a Melbourne Sandbelt Golf Club. And it could be one of any number because there's so many good ones there. A longtime panelist and world top 100 course raider for Golf Magazine. And we're we're from Golf Week here, but we don't mind that to have Gary with us. Uh, Gary's images have graced the pages of a number of the golf industry's premier magazines, including Golf Week. Uh, he's married to Maureen. He has, they have three gorgeous daughters, Alex, Danielle, and Grace. Grace is my mother's name, so I'm very partial to that. Uh, Gary feels blessed for his ability to inspire golfers with his appealing golf course photography. Gary is also very involved in the planning and management of international golf tours and golf events staged for corporations and other businesses. And we want to talk to him about that as well uh, as his experiences uh, as a photographer. So, Gary, welcome very much to this podcast. Uh, It's great talking to you again. Uh, And I assume that you are, in fact, at home in Melbourne. Is that correct? Thanks, Jim. Yes, uh, I am, in fact, in Melbourne down under, and it's... uh... At 6.49 a.m. in the morning, and uh, it's great. Best start to the day uh, is, is the morning. But uh, I was intrigued by you reading over my uh, so-called biography and what I've done and haven't done. It's been certainly a journey and one that I've been very excited to uh, to, to be on, and it's, it's ongoing, and I love it. Every day of my life, I love it. That's terrific. Um, 
you've played golf all over the world, Gary. Um, and so I want to start, I want to, I have some questions about Australia because in my own life, as you well know, I made the golf week trip to Australia. What year was that? Was that like 2014 or uh, 15? 2014, 2015. Yeah. That's right. Well, we made the trip, you know, flew, we, we, we started in Melbourne. We played some of those great sand belt courses that I can, I still go back. And sometimes when I'm having a hard time falling asleep at night, I try to go back and, you know, replay the routings of you know, Victoria or, or uh, Kingston Heath or, or Melbourne, Royal Melbourne. I mean, just so many great golf courses. Uh, it was, and then we went on to King Island uh, you, we, in the, in the middle of the Tasman sea, which was unbelievable experience. I mean, especially for someone who doesn't especially like flying in little small airplanes and landing on grass or sand airfields. <laughs> and then after a couple of days, you know, looking at how many wallaby, how the wallabies outnumbered the, the people in King Island. Then we flew over to Barnboogle in Tasmania. And I remember the first time I had a friend, Jonathan Cummings, who was a, who's been with Golf Week for a number of years. And Jonathan made a trip to Tasmania many, many years before I did. And I thought, you know, when I first heard he went to Tasmania, for a lot of Americans, you know, the idea of going to Tasmania is like, you know, it's like the end of the end of the world. And it and and it isn't. It's it's it's, it's a long way from us, but it's not in some ways it's, it's, you can get there. And then we went back to uh, to Australia proper. Not that as Tasmania isn't properly part of Australia, but then we went to Sydney and ended our trip in Sydney and and it was just I mean I hope someday I get to do it again um, so I want to start with some questions about Australia you've played golf all over the world how is golf in Australia and I should say maybe in New Zealand which I unfortunately have not played yet how is it unique or different from uh, playing golf other spots of the world uh, I mean, t tell us why. I mean, don't give us necessarily the sales pitch about why you should come. I can turn. I can do that. But t tell us what's what's unique about playing in Australia. But, but another very good question. I growing up in the sand belt, as you alluded to, I sort of expected that golf around the world would be the same as the Melbourne sand belt. And uh, certainly, having travelled in, I think twenty two odd countries around around the place now, I've got a a broader perspective of what golf worldwide is like. How would you characterise Australian golf? Well, it's um, it's friendly to start things off. So the people are, are great, lovely. It's very, very friendly. The golf golf is generally accessible. Even the private courses allow uh, visitors to play from both interstate and uh, and overseas. In terms of the courses themselves, they're, they're generally uh, a more rugged style as opposed to Whilst they can combine the the manicuring that you might typically expect in a in a top US course, they also have the the natural nuances and subtleties. Uh, sand is a very key part of of golf course construction in Australia, and uh, we know how much golf course architects love sand to be able to mould and shape sand in terms of uh, durability and playability on a daily basis. Sand is fantastic. So we're used to courses here that basically it rains. The, uh, the rain goes through the sand and you're playing again in about five or ten minutes. So bunkering, uh, particularly in the sand belt, bunkering is really one of the key distinctive elements. And when you've got influences like um, Dr. Alistair McKenzie, who designed a number of uh, great courses in our part of the world, including um, where I play Royal Melbourne, it's just, uh, it's just astounding how, how good the golf is. 
having said that, it's also varied. So even though you've got wonderful golf within a fairly close proximity to one another, courses like Metropolitan and Victoria and Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath all have their own distinctive and individual flavours, which uh, which makes it quite nice as well. Uh, you you spoke about your wonderful trip, and and I remember those small plane rides and the large group of golfers we had over at King Island. It was wonderful that you got to experience Cape Wickham, which uh, is probably Australia's second uh, form of destination golf. Uh, Barnboogle Dunes and Barnboogle Lost Farm, and now Boogle Run, which is a short course. That's Australia's first example of destination golf, a place you have to actually make an effort to get to, a bit like Band and Dunes was in the US, and, uh, and Cape Wickham and now Ocean Dunes on the tiny island of King Island has provided another example of destination golf. And, and that's exciting as well because if you make the effort to get there, you will be rewarded uh, with some fantastic golf, albeit with some challenging weather that can happen on those small islands. So you've got all of those elements and that's, that's even before you head up to places like Sydney and Queensland further north and across to the west. So golf in Australia, is, uh, it's varied, it's, it's high quality on a world scale and it's, uh, it's accessible and it's friendly. You also asked me about New Zealand and you really do need to get to New Zealand, Jim, because it's, it's special and uh, it's becoming more special with places like Tara Iti. Uh, an hour and a, hour and a bit north of Auckland, um, a Doke course and two new courses that are going in there, TRI Links, which again built on the most amazing bit of land, chopped down a whole few thousand pine trees and there's just rolling sand dunes and those courses are extraordinary. But then also on the North Island, you get places like Cowrie Cliffs, which I'm sure the listeners would have heard of, Cowrie Cliffs and Cape Kidnappers, which are... Um, are opulent, they're magnificent, they're visually overloading. And as a photographer, they just, just blow me away every time I go there. Just the, the images I capture and the, and the scenes that you have before you. So so that, that's probably a snapshot of what golf's like in Australia and New Zealand. Hopefully it gets um, your listeners excited. Is it doable? I mean, I know, I know people that do it, but how doable is it to do both, to do justice to the golf courses in Australia and New Zealand in one trip? Well, you just need time, don't you? But I think <laughs> safely, with, if you're here for three months, yeah, we can get you to play everything. But you, uh, if you're here typically, say, for a two-week period, you can get a, a nice selection of New Zealand courses, which might be a four- or five-day snapshot, and then you head over to Australia and you've got about a, an eight- or nine-day uh, snapshot over here and and in that time frame you can get to experience uh, the best best of those courses if you want a bit more breathing time and a bit more sightseeing time then allow allow more time in your itinerary but we've had clients that have yeah. zipped over for a seven-day trip and clients that have stayed here for a month yeah i think uh you know i think our trip was maybe 10 days maybe close to 10 days yeah um, and they, they, you know, we got to see a lot, but we, there was, there were things that, you know, I know that I would, I didn't get to play and I'd love to play. Um, but, um, yeah, I think I'm, if I come a second time, I think I would probably try to not, not only make the New Zealand trip, 
but I think I would like to try to stay longer. There's so, you know, again, the sand, sand belt region of Melbourne is just such a terrific, I, how, I wanted to ask you this, how would you compare both in terms of the uh, ecology of the sand belt uh, and, and the culture, how would you, would you compare it? How would you compare it to Pinehurst? You know, that's the area that I guess in my mind, you know, might be the most similar to, to the Sandbelt region of, of Melbourne. Um, would you say that Pinehurst is really more comparable in terms of the golf courses? Or would you say that, that Bandon is more comparable? I mean, the difference is you've got ocean. Of course, you've got sea right next. But I, I'm trying to think in the Sandbelt region, I don't remember any of the courses necessarily being coastal per se i mean they're not far from the coastline but they're not they're not ocean they're not oceanfront or sea you know would you how would you compare it with either bandon or pebble or, or pinehurst and you've also got monterey peninsula as well which is yeah a, you've got your different regions uh for, for golf and even out on long island um but uh pinehurst and i've, I've been to pinehurst um, a number of years ago I found that, yes, within the resort at the time, I think they had eight or nine courses, and they were, I felt that they were all fairly similar, mm. even though they're different with architect designs and so on. They were similar in that there were lots of pine trees and holes carved through pine trees, etc. The experience you get at the Melbourne Sandbelt, as I alluded to earlier, was that even though you're in a fairly close proximity, and we're talking maybe seven or eight world-class courses within a a 10-mile radius of one another, you're getting distinctive and completely different golf experiences. So uh, that's probably one of the main lures is that you could be at Royal Melbourne uh, in the morning and then head over to, to Kingston Heath or Yarra Yarra or somewhere like that and you're getting a completely different golf experience. So Band and Dunes is, uh, uh, again, as you say, it's 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 remote, but it's, it's seaside, uh, even though... The courses up there are a little bit different. There's probably still a sameness in the in the look and the feel and the setting of the place. So that if if we sort of take an England experience and the Heathland courses around London, that's probably what I would say is a mm -hmm. a similar feel from a sandbelt perspective to uh, uh, yeah. So places yeah. like Sunningdale and Swinley and, and, and Berkshire and and so on is probably a similar field. No, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I, I agree with you. I, not, not that I've played as many of those in the London area as I would have liked, I would like to do. Um, let me, I mean, one thing I want to talk about, especially given this podcast and uh, in terms of the interest of the Golf Week course raters and in, in architecture. Um, and of course, you know, I taught a college course on the history of golf course architecture for a number of years. So, uh, and I know that you have, and we're going to get to your photography, but I, but and its relationships to architecture. But I want me to ask you a question about architecture with these courses in Australia and New Zealand. Um, I mean, some of these courses are were were, were native Australians who designed them, uh, and a lot of the newer ones are you know are Americans or Europeans. Um, how does uh, the taste for golf architecture differ, if any? Between Australian golf, the Australian golf population, Australian golf culture, and abroad, I mean, are, are, what's distinctive about the approach to architecture 
within Australian golf, uh, or is it just really sort of consist has the same sorts of elements, the evolution to it that's occurred in other parts of the world? I, I think the thing that's I wouldn't say distinctive, but Australian golf generally is generally is is a minimalist kind of feel to it. So it's uh, it's not about moving huge wads of of dirt here and there to to create or craft a golf course. It's generally about taking the lie of the land, identifying the holes that will look good and and work together well, and then and laying it out accordingly. So uh, that's sort of in the more traditional courses. As you say, they've been around for 100, 100 plus years, many of these sandbelt courses. Um, there is, however, a new breed of courses that, that we alluded to earlier, places like Barnburgle Dunes and, and Lost Farm and uh, Cape Wickham, et cetera, that, uh, a, again, they, you know, as an architect, and I remember chatting to, to Mike Clayton at the time, sort of in the Barnburgle era, they could have routed holes in any one of, a hundred different ways. Mike Clayton worked with Tom Doak on, on Barn Boogle. So uh, they were spoiled for choice. And likewise, um, just a little heads up to the listeners about what I think is going to be an extraordinary new course down about three miles from Hobart Airport. And that is a place called Seven Mile Beach. And that's um, something, again, that, that Mike Clayton's uh, business, um, Clayton DeVries DuPont, uh, is doing Seven Mile Beach. Look out for that place. It's uh, it's going to be extraordinary. Now, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm, I'll ask it anyway to see if I am. And that is, it seems like you know the, the uh, many of the names that you've mentioned are American designers that have come in. W to what extent have Australians themselves been active in designing courses in the last 20 years? And can you tell us about some of the more prominent ones and what, what they've been doing and contributing to this? Yeah, certainly. And um, the people of, of note primarily, <clears throat> some that I really love their work is, um, is OCM, which is Ogilvy, Cocking and Mead. So Jeff Ogilvy and then... Um, Mike Cocking and Ashley Mead, they've um, really done some wonderful stuff, particularly the uh, the redo of Peninsula, um, Peninsula Country Golf Club, 36-hole complex place that I was a member of for a number of years. They've completely transformed the place and it is just, it's got so much worldwide respect and uh, and rightly so. It's just extraordinary, the, the setup down there. But likewise, they've also done some little work. Some, they did a template course uh, out of a place called Lonsdale or Point Lonsdale called Lonsdale Links, which uh, they've got their own version of of, um, of the Oakmont Pew bunkers and Redan greens and, and thumbprint, thumbprint greens, etc. So there's certainly some creative stuff coming out from some Australian architects. Um, Crafter Mogford is another, another uh, architect that do some wonderful work, both restoration and new development work. They've also got a project out at... Um, near Hobart Airport called Arm End. So there is a, a wonderful flavour of, of Australian architects coming coming through that uh, just are really adding adding to the, the rich fabric of Australian golf. Because you mentioned, yes, certainly we've had places like like Doak and Cork Crenshaw and, and Mike DeVries and so on that have, have been out. But we certainly have, we probably punch above our weight in terms of high quality golf course architects in, in this country. And there's plenty of people I've 
people like Harley Cruz and so on that I've forgotten. Bob Harrison has done some wonderful work. But, uh, yeah, there's plenty of them around. Yeah. Tell, tell us more. Uh, tell, tell the audience more about Cape Wickham and King Island and, and designs and the, and the designer involved, designer or design team involved. Tell us a little bit about that island and its history and what it is and where it's at, because it is a phenomenal place. I mean, uh, I, I've, I've given all kinds of stories and I, I the, uh, you know, I even have, besides posting some pictures, my own pictures, of course, you took a wonderful picture of our entire group, you know, standing with the 18th hole in the background and the lighthouse in the background. And yeah. I even have a, a, a video of coming in for a landing and taking off from, 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 uh, from King Island, uh, so it's such a fascinating place, and and it's an unusual. I mean, it is, it's a true destination place. You've got to want to go there. So, tell us a little bit more about that. You certainly do want to go there, and you get such variability in the weather. I think I've been there seven or eight times, and I've been blown or rained out on a number of occasions. But as you mentioned, when we were there with the Golf Week group. The weather was extraordinary and uh, you just you just light up and you just say I could stand on, I remember the 17th tier, par three over, over a little cove before you play the 18th. You just say, wow, I could just sit here and have a picnic, picnic all day. But Cape Wickham is a case, uh, a case in point that uh, general farmland that, uh, as you say, with an iconic lighthouse that forms part of the logo and, um, and then a golf course was routed routed through there. One of the key people instrumental with with seeing that vision come to pass, um, Duncan Andrews was a person who's um, developed a number of courses in Melbourne, developed uh, some courses, uh, one called the Dunes, and then down on the Bellarine Peninsula, which is the other side of Melbourne, courses called 13th Beach. He has a real passion for, uh, for seeing great golf realised, so he invested heavily in Cape Wickham. He uh, got involved, uh, a young guy, probably not so young now, called Darius Oliver, who you may have heard of, uh, involved mm-hmm. in Planet Golf, runs Planet Golf. And Darius spent um, extraordinary amounts of time on site, routing, looking. I remember there was one point they had an in- initial tranche of land that uh, was away from from the water itself. So you will recall the 17th and 18th poles, the iconic sweeping slight dogleg right 18th with Victoria Cove on the right-hand side. It's akin to to Pebble Beach, but reversed, that land wasn't even in their uh, their uh, thinking. And then Darius, uh, recall, was the person that said, we need to get that land. And that then opened up the routing in, in such a better way than what was originally proposed. So really, that's that's it. And I think when you get a place like King Island, it's it's remote. You ask me what, what is there before golf? Uh, whilst there was a little nine-hole nine-hole course with uh, two sets of tees. It's quite cute. Uh, King Island is renowned for cheese, beef, lobster, and a bit of surfing. So they make the best cheese going around, and you can really have overload on, on cheese. Gary, aren't they also – isn't the island also known for shipwrecks? <laughs> is that correct? Yes. Uh, there's, they even have a tour, I think. You can – go around and see probably about 20 different shipwrecks so it's a somewhat rocky craggy place that um, wasn't too friendly to visiting boats but uh, I remember when we were there with the Gulf League group we had the 
uh, was it the crayfish pies? It was that wonderful. And scallop pies as well. So you can certainly overload uh, visually and, and in a culinary sense as well. Well, I remember, I remember wallaby meatballs uh, being... Yes. That uh, was in... Uh, I was a little hesitant, but, uh, you know, pretty good. Pretty good. So um, let, let's talk now a little bit about your... I mean, I, I, I promise photography is going to come up, but... Um, your the business aspect of what you've been doing over the last twenty years or so, in terms of of planning and managing uh, events and tours and outings and so forth, can you tell us how that started for you and and what you have done with it, how it's evolved, and what you're still doing with that? Certainly, my my whole journey into golf is probably a non-standard journey, so. Started off as a as a char- did a business degree, then became a chartered accountant as you do. Worked for a large uh, firm called KPMG, but never really had a passion for for uh, audit or uh, accounting. And worked my way into into a golf sense. How did I do that? Uh, years ago, I wrote a golf stats package that a number of golf pros started using to measure and monitor all level of stats. Um, through that, we had the Australian Institute of Sport that started using it and a few golf pros, Stuart Appleby, Kari Webb, etc. And through there, I got to know Ian Baker Finch and Steve Ban, who was a coach to a number of top players, and started working with them in the Pure Golf Academy. So that was sort of the foray into, into the golf scene, and that then morphed into uh, importing, you'll love this, Jim, importing golf golf-themed pewter giftware from Providence, Rhode Island into Australia, a little company called Fort Golf. They did some great stuff. And we then sold that into uh, to various companies around Australia who are running uh, outings and uh, we'd sell them as prizes. Uh, from there, that developed into running our own events. So we, we now have a, a, an active team that that we run over 50 or 60 corporate outings a year, including for some some large companies like Mercedes-Benz, for instance, we administer and run their whole golf program. So that's a fairly important part of our business. But what morphed out of that was our golf holiday business that you, that we first came in contact with each other on, and that is organising bespoke holidays, either for people coming into Australia traveling within Australia or outbound. We do an escorted trip uh, every year to the Open Championship, and we love that. We're looking forward to St. Andrews in, in July. So you're sort of probably wondering, where does photography come in? Photography was probably the last piece of the puzzle, and that was more just a love of taking photos of golf courses. I started taking them. People thought, oh, these are okay. Uh, I still remember one one shoot I did up in Queensland, and the guy said, oh, I want you to sign this photo because when you're, when you're famous, I'll have something to look back on. And I laughed at that. Uh, but it's amazing how the journey has just continued on. And as I alluded to, 575 courses, 22 countries, and, and something I absolutely love doing. So hopefully that provides a nice snapshot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one question that I, I think people might have, and that is there are – there are some adventurous individuals and groups that might think that they could make all, if they wanted to go to Australia or New Zealand or whatever, that they could somehow figure out how to do it all themselves. 
you know, and I think it's that's a foolish notion <laughs> myself. But I mean, having having benefited from the experience of, of of an organization, a business like yours in particular, and how how everything gets put together, kind of access you mentioned earlier that the access to Australian courses is not as exclusive or restrictive as maybe some other places, but it's still you, you need to have access to some extent. So. Um, don't I would assume you you totally agree with me that if there, if people are if, if Americans Europeans want to come play Australia and 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 Tas, part and Tasmania part of Australia and New Zealand that going with an experienced uh, a company like yours uh, is the way to go because it's all figured out for you and uh, and in, even in terms of cost it, I mean I'm not sure. Wouldn't you say that you're certainly competitive? If not, you're going to beat what, what, what most people. You're going to beat what most people could put together for themselves in terms of travel and itinerary. Most definitely. I mean, you can do anything yourself, Jim. As you know, it just depends how much pain and pulling out the hair that that, that you want to encounter. So, yes, the courses are accessible in Australia, probably similar to the UK as opposed to the US. But there's still a matrix you need to understand and follow that, no, we can't do golf here on a Wednesday because it's Ladies' Day. We can't do it here on a Tuesday because it's a corporate outing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what causes generally the most hassle is structuring an itinerary with multiple courses on different days and making it flow and just, just work and then sort of rolling into that appropriate accommodation. And there's there's an abundance of accommodation and, some people, guys-only groups may be comfortable in staying at something less than a five-star facility, but then when we get couples groups, they may say, well, it's not just all about the golf. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. There's some wonderful sightseeing, and we can throw in some, some unique adventures from that point of view. So, yes, you can do it all on your own. Uh, you might save a little bit of money, but it's going to take you a lot of time and effort. So... That's why companies such as, as ourselves, Golf Select, we exist because we, we can structure an itinerary, we can put it together well, and we can ensure that the overall experience at the end of the day is something that clients just go, wow, that was great. I believe that with our with our trip that, you know, um, there are spouses, non-golfing spouses that come along often on these trips. And, and I know uh, when my spouse goes, which isn't that often, I, I always encourage her to. But that I believe your company also, in terms of itinerary, will put together some side side trips uh, if you want a, a winery a museum uh, some historical site a shopping center a casino whatever i mean you do pay attention to the this that it's that these that this is really something that is in demand as well and that you're that you're planning primarily the golf but you're also trying to make it uh something that that non-golfing co company folks could could benefit from as well yeah most definitely <clears throat> Most definitely. I mentioned before that you get some groups and for the groups, it's all about the golf. So to the point where they're playing 36 holes a day for 10 days straight and they just do, do, do. And then they forget about, uh, by the end of the trip, they forget what actually happened on day two, round one. But then you get other groups that take things in a more leisurely sense and they say, well, Yes, golf's important, and it is an important part. It's a golf trip. But I also want to experience the fabric of, of the city, whether that is, as you said, 
a winery, a cultural experience, a museum experience. In Sydney, it would be doing something on the harbour, maybe having a boat trip on the harbour. So there's an abundance of those kinds of activities that we can work into any itinerary. And it's really just about communicating back and forth between the client as to what they want. What do they want the overall experience to be at the end of the day? And then we will tailor accordingly. So we don't do cookie cut stuff. It's Whilst we'll have sample itineraries that will say, okay, here's a way to experience the Sandbelt or whatever region they may want to visit. It's very much about tailoring to a client's particular needs. So we may take the base template as a guide and then modify accordingly. For individuals or groups or companies that are interested in, in the potential of, what, of, of having something planned for, uh, by your group, your organization, uh, is there a website? Uh, is there, you know, we can put graphically up onto or we can make it clear you know, as part of this podcast how that happens, but maybe just tell us sure. uh, how, what would the best way to get in touch with you? Definitely. Uh, just uh, visit our website, golfselect.com.au. And on there, you'll see friendly faces and you'll see Matthew, Richard or Linda, who will be able to tailor an itinerary, talk to you. We're finding in this day and age, Jim, it's wonderful. One of the, the upsides of something like COVID is that we've all become so familiar with doing things via, via an online video medium, such as Zoom or Teams or so on. So we... Uh, regularly have uh, Zoom catch-ups with clients or prospective clients just to talk it through at a face-to-face -face level. So visit our website in the first instance, golfselect.com.au, and then we can go from there. I can imagine how COVID has affected the golf tourism. Uh, tell us how things, where things stand now for you all and what you are seeing in the next year or two. Uh, is this going to start, I mean, are you starting to see more and more people interested in making the trips or are they still somewhat hesitant about it? There is so much pent-up demand. It's, it's scary in a positive way. For, for two years, basically on about March the 16th, 2020, our business just turned off completely for two years and likewise what are we we're tuesday the 15th here in melbourne it's it's two years almost to the day since life changed for us but now we are getting so much in the way of inquiry and demand and desire to travel so we've got some wonderful groups that are coming out from the u.s at the uh, the latter half of 2022 and certainly in 2023 we have got an abundance of work the the guys are doing in putting together itineraries, which is providing a, a challenge in, in, in the terms of availability. As I know, the UK courses have experienced that because everything's been deferred, it's now being pushed to 2022 late or 2023, and there's only so much availability. So one takeaway point is that if you're considering coming in the near future, then get on the phone or start thinking about it now because otherwise tea times will just be gone and you won't be able to get in. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, uh, try, uh, I want to close with one, uh, another topic uh, that interests me a great deal. And that is we've got your photography and we've got your interest in architecture and ratings of courses. How would you, what would you say in terms of, how does the the beauty, the aesthetics of the photography, the vistas that are captured by the camera, 
how would you that uh, you put that on the one side on the other side you've got the virtues of the architecture well, how whatever however you want to define those do you see the photography and the appreciation of the architecture as one uh, a side to, to to the same coin do you see them ever in conflict or in tension with one another where the maybe the aesthetics of the photography are so stunning that you can sort of it, even if it, it could be a terribly designed hole but it's gorgeous <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, or you can you know that sometimes the architectural architecture can can the architecture be more subtle than the elements of the photography uh, so what exactly is the synergy plus or minus when it comes to the photography and the virtues of the architecture? Very good question. And most definitely, um, as and I wear a number of hats, as you're finding out today. So when I put my photography hat on, it's about creating for my clients the best visual element to showcase their golf course. And uh, that may not always be photographing the hole the way the the hole is played but it may be just taking advantage of things like the lighthouse at Cape Wickham as a backdrop so uh, there's certainly plenty of courses out there with subtleties and variations in movement of land by architects that is more subtle than a camera can capture and by that I mean that in my photos, I like to have elements such as bunkers in the foreground or trees to frame the shots or nice backdrops. But some of the best holes out there may not have any of those features. They may just be um, bunkerless, but they may have just a subtlety and a movement of land that is uh, requires a great understanding or appreciation of how to play the hole, but it doesn't photograph very, very well. So again a number of um, architects have sort of scolded me over the years for Gary you take a photo of this particular hole but you're taking it from the side and you should be taking it away solely the way that the hole is played I like to try and try and do both because I'm trying to satisfy um, a couple of people uh, both the architect as well as the, the client as well as the prospective client that sees an amazing vista and just goes, wow, I need to get to this particular place. I'm interested, I mean, as a historian of technology, when I had my academic career still going, I'm interested in how technology affects everything, uh, including the golf uh, environment. The drone, the, the drone I know has, you know, I know that that is an element now of golf course photography that is very central to what is being done. Does the drone do more for the photography than it does for the architecture, or does the architecture also benefit from the drone in very in very important ways? Excellent question, and it, it does both. It just depends how you use it. So going back one step, we used to go up in helicopters if we wanted to get any kind of aerial perspective. Now, helicopters did a couple of things. One, they were, they were very scary to be in because you imagine me uh, in a two-person <laughs> helicopter uh, with no door on it. And uh, this is over Cape Kidnappers. And the guy putting my seatbelt on and then putting a little bit of tape around the seatbelt to make sure that I didn't fall out was his comment. So, uh, and we then go up over the cliffs of Cape Kidnappers and I capture the most amazing shots and you can get to places very, very quickly and manoeuvre and so on. So 
that's wonderful, but at uh, I think fifteen hundred dollars an hour, that's quite expensive. So you then fast forward to the the whole drone element, and drones certainly have transformed and changed, both for good and bad, the uh, the whole visual element of golf course photography. Anyone now thinks they can buy a drone, put it up in the sky, take a few photos, and they've become a golf course photographer. But I'm still of the firm belief that on-the-ground photography is still a critical key element of, of good golf course uh, photography to showcase the way that the, the hole is designed by the, by the architect. Having said that, when you're standing at about five or six feet from the ground, you can't, in a two-dimensional medium that is the photograph, you can't always get a full appreciation of the subtleties and the elements in the photograph or in, in the hole. So that's where you need a little bit of height with the drone to expose those, to maybe expose the bunker that you can't fully see, to expose the fall off in the land running left or right, to see the subtleties of the, the greens as the shadows hit particular parts of the greens and expose things like thumbprints and false fronts and things along those lines. So the drone's been both good and bad. I would say in the main it's been very good because it's enabling me to get around a golf course in a much faster fashion than previously, which is motorised cart or when I'm at Bally Bunyan, walking and running up and down sand dunes, which can get pretty tiring if you're not in fit shape, which I can assure you I'm not. Well, my last question, and I we, we might I might have to have you on for a part two at some point in the future. Uh, we, there's so much I have to ask you about. Love but I'm I'm very interested in the future always of things, and and uh, so I want to ask you: Have you thought about what your future might be in terms of what else is possible in the realm of golf course image imaging? Um, I mean, I know that this is, there's probably already a lot of things that maybe I'm not even aware of, but I have this dream that I'm in a nursing home, which it probably isn't too far, far from now. And I put on some virtual reality goggles and I'm connected up to uh, programming where I go to some of the greatest golf course holes in the world. I'm standing on the eighth fairway at Pebble Beach you know, the famous hole where you got the cliff and you, yeah. I think it's the greatest second shot into, into a hole anywhere in golf or one of the greatest. And I turn 360 degrees and I see Carmel Bay. I see the ocean. I see the cliff. I see the whole La Vista Pebble Beach. And I, and maybe you can turn it even into a situation where, I mean, I'd be happy just to look at the site and just sort of look around see everything that's there, or let's say 17th tee at, Wick, at Cape Wickham. You're on that tee, you know. So either you're just there and you're turning in 360 degrees and you experience the sound, maybe the waves, the wind, you see the click, the lighthouse, or maybe even you can, maybe it's all, the programming is such that you can swing a club and hit a shot. I don't know. But are we going to get to that point where we can do something like that? Because when I'm in the nursing home, I'm not going to be able to go to those places anymore. Yeah, I need to do it in virtual reality. And why can't we do that sometime soon where we are going to the great golf courses of the world, standing in places that are just incredible, you know? Um, and um, is that going to happen? 
It's it's happening already, Jim. Yep. We've got, as you mentioned, the virtual re- virtual reality and the headsets. It's uh, you know, it was forecast years ago with Arnold Schwarzenegger in Total Recall, wasn't it? The movie where they sort of get transported into a virtual uh, environment. So certainly it's happening, and technology allows that to to happen extraordinarily. It does. Um, imagine being. On the eighth, on the cliff, on the edge of the eighth hole at Pebble Beach, a la Jordan Spieth, and trying to hit a shot and not uh, fall over the cliff. Right. So certainly there are there, there are so many vistas out there, and you've mentioned a couple. But you know, you stand on the first tee at Macrahanish, and you've got that that tee shot over over the ocean to start your day off, or wherever you might be. You might be at Kawana in the, in Japan, and you've got the first tee shot there, which is the flowing down heavily flowing down par five there's so many wonderful um, aspects around that yes we need to be able to offer them to people and you've still got many more years before you be in a nursing home i know that but we do need to offer those experiences to people that can't actually get out and experience uh, the golf course so certainly that's that's all happening things like drones and drone flyovers whole flyovers and um, and the virtual reality stuff that we spoke about. We're, we're there, and it's only going to get better. Do you plan to get involved in such technologies yourself? Oh, yeah, certainly. I I, I like to I, – I try and keep abreast of what's going on in terms of technology, and my, my philosophy there is, okay, let's see, does it value add or is it just a gimmick? If it's a gimmick, I'll probably steer away from it mm-hmm. uh, somewhat, but if I see it as value adding in whatever way that might be, Yes, we'll we'll embrace it just as we did with drones about seven or eight years ago. We were obviously an on the ground photographer that saw, hey, there's great potential in drones. Let's do what we need to do to get qualified and and uh, and do all the exams and so on. So it's funny you say that. I've got an exam tonight for my EU drone uh, certification. I did the UK drone certification last week because I'm heading off to to do an 11-week um, trip of the UK and Europe taking photos for a new book I'm releasing at the end of this year. So you need to keep be kept abreast of what's going on, arm yourself appropriately. But if it's a gimmick, and there have been plenty of gimmicks over the years, just mm. understand that, identify it, and just push it aside. Well, if you if you ever need a test subject for any of these projects, you, you, yeah. know, you know where to find me. And then also... Uh, how do we? I mean, how do we order any of your photographs that we would like to have for our, you know, to frame and put on our walls? Yeah, you might be able to see in the background. Uh, I have a couple pictures framed yes. that actually I took with my with my with my cell phone, which came out with yeah. unbelievable resolution. Uh, these are a couple holes at Turnberry that maybe you you recognize yes. a little bit. This one over yeah. here, par three, I think it's eleven. Maybe I knocked it yeah. to like two inches, and so you can barely see the ball right next to the hole. I took it right after I hit my shot. But uh, anyway, um, so how do we get a hold of, of of you in terms of looking at your inventory, your portfolio, and what we could order for sure. you? You're putting me out of business, but uh, isn't that true that everyone <laughs> now has a cell? Everyone has a cell phone. And everyone can be in a particular place at a particular time when the sun's just uh, lighting up the landscape accordingly and capture amazing images. So uh, in terms of my uh, inventory, as, as you say, I have a website at golfphotos.com.au. It's important to add the .au. And on there you'll find 
I think it's about 150,000 photos from wow. 575 courses in 22 countries. So they're sorted in, in country order or you can do a search of, of whichever photo might take your fancy. Uh, we use a US photo lab so they can print and ship anywhere in the world. And, um, uh, and yeah, you can put it up in your office or home accordingly. Uh, one thing the listeners might also like is on a daily basis, I post a photo to Instagram of photos of my travels around the world. So I think yesterday we had Tara Eti. Oh, sorry, yesterday was Cape Kidnappers. Then we had Tara Eti the day before. We had a wonderful place called Enniscrone, then North Berwick, Cape Wiccan. I'm just scrolling through Royal County Down, etc. So for those of your listeners on Instagram, if you go to Gary Lisbon Golf, uh, they can get their daily fix of a golf image. Well, Gary, it sounds like a tough life, but somebody's got to do it, you know. So I'm, I really, uh, I, I love your work. Uh, you were such a gentleman and so helpful on the trip that I went on. I, I think maybe I've been on a couple that you, that your company actually put together yeah. and it was done so well. So anyway, thank you so much for the time that you spent with us. I'm sure that the audience is really going to enjoy this. And I, and I mean it when I say I hopefully maybe in a few more months down the road, uh, we can do it again. Because uh, I, I have many more questions to ask you about uh, the range of subjects that you have great experience in. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for the opportunity. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.